At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you thought, how in the world is that even possible? Recently, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine, this was several weeks back now, on uh, conspiracy theories. Just one of those nice afternoon summer chats. And uh, somehow in our conversation, we, on conspiracy theories, we got into a discussion of whether or not aliens built the pyramids. And so we were sitting there having this kind of fun dialogue. Don't worry, neither of us were arguing for it. But, but we were just kind of discussing the reality that there's a chunk of people that genuinely say aliens built the pyramids. And so we were kind of talking and laughing about it. And it, it got me thinking about, well, well how, like, what, how do we actually know how the pyramids were built? So I pulled out my phone and I started researching them. And the pyramids are pretty impressive structures. By God's grace, I've had the opportunity to see them live in person. I lived in Egypt for a couple of years. And I was like, oh, I wonder how. And, and as I dug deeper, what I began to realize was no one actually really knows how they built the pyramids. I mean, there's theories about the sort of ramps they build and, and what they might have possibly done. But when you really dig into ancient architecture and the tools that were available to them, it's, it's a pretty incredible thing. And I, I remember even, I mean, you know, we're laughing, okay, it wasn't the aliens, but I remember sitting there thinking like, how was it even possible that this ancient group of people were able to build something like this? with the tools they had that has endured all of time. Like, it it almost seems like this feels impossible that they would do this. I don't know if you've ever had those feelings, right? Maybe in front of a skyscraper or seeing something spectacular or seeing a performer or someone do something, you just think, I don't even know how that's possible that that could be done. Here's the question, though, that I want to consider today. Have you ever felt that way about the Christian life? Like when it comes to what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, to be one of his people, have you ever for a moment stepped back and had the feeling like, I don't even know if that's possible. Like how could that be? If not, maybe we've we've misunderstood a little bit about the life that Jesus might have been calling us and his followers to and what the path of discipleship really means for our lives and and the way in which we're called to live in the world. Because when you really dig into it, it kind of leaves us in a moment where you go, like, how on earth could someone possibly do that? How, How could someone actually live that way? I have to imagine this is a little bit of how the disciples were beginning to feel during Jesus's last teaching before his death and resurrection. So we've been in this series, The Follower's Trail Guide, where we've been looking through Jesus's last teaching before his death, which is found in John 13 through 17. And in this section, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, for when he will die, rise again, and ascend to be with the Father, and for them continuing his mission and work on in the world. And at the beginning of this teaching, Jesus spends a a, a, 
section of teaching comforting his disciples, helping them to try to understand why it's necessary for him to go away, what it means that he's about to do, what he is going to do. Last week, we kind of looked at the first part of this section where Jesus comes and says, hey, hey don't let your hearts be troubled, he says in John 14, 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. I, I know I'm going away, but don't be anxious about it because I'm actually going to go away to prepare a place for you in which you can dwell with God forever. So it's really important that I go away. And, and not only that, just so you know, I, I'm the way in which you will experience that incredible eternal life that God has for you. And Jesus kind of is laying out for his followers why it's necessary for him to go away and to comfort them. But in the middle of that, then he begins to kind of talk out of that reality about what is actually they're going to do in response to his going to make a way for them to be able to dwell with God forever. And, and last week, we kind of saw right at the end of the passage we were studying, kind of the, the life that Jesus begins to unfurl for them. And in many ways, the passage that we're going to look at today in John 15, or uh, John 14, 15 through 31, kind of builds in flow out of what we were looking at last week. And I want to kind of take a step back a little bit and kind of unpack for you a little bit of the life that Jesus starts to point his disciples towards and, and why they might be feeling for a moment, I, I don't know if I can do this. Like, look with me at John 14. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, I've said already in the series, Jesus uses this phrase continually throughout the book of John and Almost always when he uses it, it's a statement of reality that is often contrary to what his disciples might normally perceive. So, so usually Jesus will come along and say, truly, truly, I say to you, and there's kind of a natural gut check from the disciples that go, I don't know. I mean, we just saw it a few verses earlier. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, no, I'm not. Jesus is like, yeah, you are. Right, so he, he has these statements that kind of are like, you might think this is going to be the case, but this is actually the case. So this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, so this isn't just them, this is anyone who's going to believe in Jesus, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now verse 15, then he continues that flow. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I, I like to refer to these verses as kind of the Jesus life. They're, they're kind of the verses that bring you face to face that goes, what, Jesus, what actually are you calling those that would follow you to do and be about? And Jesus kind of gives his disciples in this moment really three things that, that would kind of blow our minds if we really think about it and, and kind of force us to ask the question, like, how is that even possible? Jesus says, truly, truly, if whoever believes in me, whoever's going to trust in me and follow me, the first thing that's going to mark their life is they're going to do greater works than I do. Now, last week, I unpacked this a little bit for you, so I won't go too into detail, but when Jesus talks about greater works here, he's talking about works of a new era, the era of the new covenant that he's going to initiate. What he's reminding us is that God is now going to work powerfully through his followers in order to display the truth of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is ultimately about in anticipation of the day that he will return. The greater works are works of new creation. And what Jesus says to his followers is, you've seen me do some incredible things that point to the reality of God's kingdom and who I am as the Messiah. You're going to even do greater things 
that are going to begin to unfurl that reality after my death and resurrection. The second thing Jesus reminds them is in this new life you're going to step into, not only are you going to experience works of new creation, but you're going to live a life of answered prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. In order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So he says, you're going to live a life where you're actually going to ask me for things and I'm going to do things in the world in response to your prayers. That we're going to have that sort of relationship where you're not just like throwing up like, oh, I hope we'll see what God's going to do. But like you're actually going to ask and I'm actually going to respond. That's the sort of relationship that you're going to have, which is incredible when you really think about it. That that's the sort of life that he's calling them to. Andrew Murray, a South African pastor in his book with Christ in the School of Prayer, makes the note, if there's one thing I think the church needs to learn, it's that God means prayer to have an answer, and that it has not entered into the heart of man to conceive what God will do for his child who gives himself to believe that his prayer will be heard. Jesus says you're going to have answered prayer. And not only that, you're going to have a love for me that will be marked by your obedience to my commands. So here in verse 15, Jesus begins to transition to kind of his next section. He's continuing this vein of comfort, and he's building out what he's come from. What he's helped us to see is, I'm the way because the Father dwells in me, and I dwell in the Father, and as you follow me as the way, you're going to experience this new life marked by greater works, marked by answered prayer, and marked by a certain love for me that actually results in obedience. Jesus gives this statement in a conditional way. It's kind of stated in a way that's meant to wrestle with the truth, that genuine love for him and a following of him will ultimately result in obedience to his teaching and what he says. In many ways, this is the enduring marker you're going to see in this passage of all that would follow the way of Jesus, that those that truly would trust in him and follow him, that would seek to live out the Jesus life, that their lives will be marked by a radical obedience to his teaching and his command. And in many ways, when I look at these verses, it struck me a while back that what Jesus is inviting his disciples into is actually the life that he walked as a human being. I mean, if you really think about it, right, Jesus's life was marked by works that revealed who he was what he had come to do, what the kingdom of God was about. He actually just said that in verse 11, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus, his life was lived in such union with his Father that he spoke to God and was heard. Hebrews 5.7 tells us that Jesus was heard because of his reverence in his prayers during his time on earth. Not only that, Jesus walked in perfect love and obedience with the Father. We're going to see in several verses, and we'll unpack this a little bit more in a minute, but he says that I do as the Father's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. That Jesus lived a relationship of love and obedience to his heavenly Father. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples in the flow of preparing them for his departure is, hey, this life that I've been showing before you, that's the life I'm inviting you into. And what has marked the life of Jesus is now going to mark the life of his followers as they continue his mission in the world. Now, that's the point when you start to see that, that you go, okay, how's that possible? 
How am I going to live life in such a way that I'm going to do greater works than Jesus? That that I'm going to have the sort of relationship that God hears me and answers what I pray? That that I'm going to have such a love for Christ that I'm actually going to obey him? Like, how, how can I even do that? I imagine the moment with the disciples a little bit like this. I've used this illustration before, but I think sometimes it's good to revisit it again because it's just helpful for me to think about it. So um, maybe think about it this way. So um, imagine that you uh, decide that you're going to learn how to play the guitar. So you, you decide you don't know how to play the guitar. I'm, I'm going to begin to try to teach myself how to play the guitar. And so you get a guitar, you get an instruction manual, you learn a few chords, right? You kind of got down a couple basics and you're trying to kind of figure out, all right, and and get better as a guitarist. Now, imagine, for the sake of this illustration, let's imagine, um, I'll imagine my favorite guitarist, who's The Edge from U2. So I love U2 and he's been one of my favorite guitarists for a long time. So imagine The Edge comes to you and he says, hey, here's the deal. I've been touring with you two for a long time, and I'm kind of tired. It's kind of time for me to be done. But the, but the band wants to continue on. They still got things they want to accomplish. So here's the deal. I want you to actually go on tour with you two and play guitar for me. How do you think you're going to feel in that moment? You'll be like, that, what, are, what are you talking about? Like, you're, have you lost your mind? First of all, how do you even know who I am? Second of all, like, I, I don't... Like, I can't play with you too. I know like three chords. Like, what, what is that even? You want me to go on tour? Like, you would in that moment feel like there is no way you can expect me to do what you do. You're one of the most famous guitarists of all time. I'm mediocre at best. And I have to feel that's kind of how the disciples have to be feeling, right? Like, they got to be feeling in this moment, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, we get it. You're the Messiah, like, you're, you're God incarnate. Like, so how can you expect me to now go and, and follow up on what you're doing and live the sort of life that you've been doing? Like, that's not even possible. Now, imagine now in that scenario, if the edge came to you and he said, hey, listen, here's the deal. You're not going to have to do that on your own. They've actually invented this new technology. It's a little microchip that they're going to implant, right? in your brain, behind your ear, and this little mic, don't get scared, I know some of you are already, you conspiracy theorists are like, ah, <laughs> right? But, but imagine, he's, he said, hey, they're going to put it right here, and, and guess, it's going to give you access to everything I know about the guitar. Everything I've learned, every chord I've, I've learned to play, every riff I've written, every song I've helped to create, all that's going to be instantly accessible to you. Now, how are you going to feel at that moment? Be like, well, cool, I can do that. Because you would recognize you can't do that in yourself, but if you had the help that was necessary to do that life, well, then I can walk into confidence. I can start to experience what's asked of me. In many ways, that's exactly what Jesus is going to point his disciples to in this passage. He's going to say, I've actually got a resource for you. I've got, I've got a help that if you would learn to engage that, that's going to help you live the life that I'm actually calling you to. I mean, that's what he says right here. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, so he gives him this vision. Then he says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you 
forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, Jesus knew that the life he was calling them to wasn't going to be possible for them to live. But what he comes to them and says in the midst of their disorientation of your leaving and we're called to this life, what are you going to do? He said, hey, guess what? I'm going to send you another helper. I'm going to actually ask the Father and he's going to send you the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to help you in what it means to live the life I'm calling you to. And that's kind of the idea that we want to unpack briefly this morning, is that really the Father sends the Spirit to help us on the way of Jesus. This word that Jesus says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. Some of you might have some different translations. Oftentimes in the English, we struggle to translate this word. Some translations use the word helper, some use the word counselor, others use comforter, some use advocate. The Greek word is actually the word parakletos. It means to come alongside of. And it was used in ancient Greek, often in legal terms, of someone who would come and provide assistance and help. That's often why we use the word advocate. But it was someone who would come alongside someone else and help them or assist them in what they were called to do. And so what Jesus has said is, I'm going to send an alongsider. I'm going to send someone who's a helper, a counselor, and all those terms kind of encapsulate the full, it's a, it's a full spectrum sort of help that's going to help you do this. Now what's interesting is not only does he say, I'm going to send you a helper, but he essentially makes the note to say, this helper that I'm sending is going to be the same essence of me. This word that Jesus uses for other, another helper in the Greek is the word alos, which means another of the same kind. So in, in, this is where we get technical, but it's good, right? It's good to get technical sometimes. In Greek, you could use two different words to say another. You could say another that's of the same essence as what you're, the subject you're speaking of, or you could say another that's of a different essence. Jesus uses the word that means another of the same essence, which means the way I've been helping you, I'm going to send someone who's of the same essence as me, who's now going to become the one to help you. And he goes on to define that. That's the spirit of truth. So God is going to send the spirit into the life of those that would follow him to help them live the life that he has called them to. One commentary on this defines this phrase this way, and I think it's helpful. It says, the Holy Spirit is called a paraclete or parakletos because he undertakes Christ's office in the world while Christ is not in the world as the God-man in bodily form. In addition, the Holy Spirit is also called the paraclete because he acts as Christ's substitute on earth. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going away, but I'm actually going to send someone as a substitute for me, who's now going to be the one to help you live the life that I'm calling you to and to fulfill the mission that I am sending my people on while I am ascended to the Father. And so he sends this helper. And then he goes on to help them understand this is what this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is actually going to do to help you live this life. And this is where it gets fun. Right? This is where it gets a little bit mind-blowing in the text. Because, again, look what he says. I'm going to send this helper, even the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive it because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
right? So he makes a distinction. Those that don't follow me, they will not experience what's about to be sent in the spirit, but you know him. How do you know him? He dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus lays out in this section three ways in which the spirit helps us. The first thing that he reminds us is the spirit of truth, the way he helps us is he dwells within us. That upon Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, his followers will actually enter a new, into a new relationship with the Spirit of God. Note that in the text where he says, he dwells with you. Right? There was an aspect in which the Spirit was present with Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry. But what Jesus says is, when I go away, what's going to come in the future is he's going to be go, move from being with you to actually being in you. And that's going to change everything in regards to your relationship to me and the life that I'm calling you to, right? Because he goes on in the very next sentence to say, I will not leave you as orphans. Right? You have to imagine that's got to be how the disciples are feeling. Like, Jesus, are you abandoning us? Are you peacing out on us? You're just going to call us to this crazy life and be like, peace out, have fun, see if you can do it. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. I'm not abandoning you. Jesus doesn't abandon his people, right? He's not an absentee dad. He says, I'm actually going to come to you. And then you say, well, how? Like, how is he going to come? Well, through the Spirit. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. Like, the world doesn't see Jesus. He's not physically present here on earth the way he was in his ministry. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So, What is he trying to say here? He's saying, you're going to see me because I'm going to rise from the dead. And when I rise from the dead and I ascend to the Father, then I'm going to send this spirit, this helper, and he's going to continue my ministry in you. Which is why he then says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. So how? How is Jesus continuing? Well, we go back to what we unpacked last week. Remember I taught you that big phrase, the doctrine of mutual indwelling? Which Jesus is trying to say, part of the reason I'm the way is because the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But now he moves that to an even deeper aspect, which is those who believe in me, when I ascend, they will receive the Spirit and God will come to dwell in you in a way that you now dwell in me and I in you. So the God that dwells in each other in Holy Trinity now comes to dwell within the life and the person of the follower of Jesus so much that Jesus can say, I'm not leaving you. I'm I'm with you in this. That's crazy. Like that is mind-blowing. I don't get that. Like that's insane. And if you don't feel a little bit of that, you just got to think about it for a minute. Like You're saying the God who made everything, who dwells, as the scripture says, in unapproachable light, who has existed for all eternity in perfect communion as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is completely other than everything in creation, will come to dwell within the life of whoever believes in Jesus. Right? Like that's, But that's what he's saying. It's as crazy as the edge coming to you and saying, I'm going to put a microchip in your brain to help you play the guitar and go on tour with you too. But it's true. It's not only the life he calls us to, but he provides for us what's necessary to live that life. Think about that for a minute. 
Think about the reality that everything you have seen up to this point about the disciples in any of the gospels is that they're bumbling buffoons who cannot get two words together straight, let alone somehow lead a mission for Jesus that would overturn the world. Like, do you ever step back and think, how on earth is the church a thing? Like, how did 12 dudes or 120 people 2,000 years ago come up against one of the greatest empires in the history of the world that was seeking to leverage all of its resources to stop them, and in 300 years, they had become such a movement that even Rome had to bow and say, all right, we'll let Jesus be legal. Well, maybe there's something of the power and essence of God that was given to those men and women. And maybe that same essence is given to us for the life that God calls us to as well. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. He's in us. And so Jesus continues then, right? Whoever has my commands, verse 21, and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So again, he comes back to that reality of, don't forget, this is what's going to mark your life. It's going to be love and obedience. You're going to have a radical love for me, and that radical love is going to result in an obedience to my commands and following me despite all the opposition that's going to come against you. And as that happens, as you walk in that life, You're going to experience the love of God and my love, and I'm going to actually manifest myself. Like, you're going to experience God in your life. Again, it's amazing. Now, this is where those disciples come in and give me hope every time, right? Because Judas, not Iscariot, not the one who abandoned, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's like, hey, how's this going to work? Like, how how are we going to see you, but... They're not going to see you. Clearly, some things aren't clicking for Judas here yet. So if they're not clicking for you yet, don't worry. Don't, don't feel bad, right? You're in good company with Jesus' followers. And look what Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus' response is, there's going to be a difference between those who experience the Spirit and step into the life who I'm calling them to and those that don't. And what will mark them is, again, love and a keeping of my word. Those that don't know that, they won't see me, they won't know me, they won't have the Spirit of God because they'll continue in the path of disobedience. They'll continue in not following my ways and not obeying my teaching. But you, my followers, right, If you follow my teaching, if you trust in me, you'll have the Spirit, and the Spirit will build that life into you. This is why we say one of the primary works that the Spirit does in the life of believers is sanctification, which is just a big fancy word, which means to be set apart or made holy for God. It's the process in which the Spirit works in our life to love Jesus more and obey him more with our lives. And that's why Jesus says, one of the primary markers of the life of those that follow me will be a growth in love and obedience. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but you will love him. And because you love him, you will desire to grow in obedience to him. You will desire to keep his word. Because that's what love is. 
And that's what Jesus keeps drawing us back to time and time again, that the Spirit will keep us in his truth and in his word. And it will be the evidence for the fact that we follow him and trust him and love him. It's like this. So as a dad, there's times where I have to tell my kids to do things, right? That's normal. Clean your room. Pick up your clothes. Whatever the, you know, there's certain instructions you have to give to help them live the right life and learn that process so when they're adults, they actually take care of their house and have some responsibility and know what they're doing. And, you know, as, as kids, they, they disobey from time to time or all the time. It just kind of depends on how it goes. And I can't judge them because I was the same way as a kid, right? And inevitably, in the process of me teaching my kids obedience and what that looks like, you know, they'll disobey. And over the years as a dad, my kids will come to me, and usually after I've confronted them, I, I will get this line from time to time. I'm really sorry, Dad, but I love you. And in the back of my head, I go, if you really love me, you probably would have just done what I said. Now, I don't say that to them because God has shown me grace, so I try to be gracious with my kid. But there's part of you that knows, like, well, if you really loved me, like if you really trusted me as a parent, if, if you really thought my dad has the best interest in mind, then you wouldn't move towards disobedience. You would move towards obedience because that's what love looks like. Genuine love for Christ should move ultimately towards greater obedience, and Jesus essentially says, the Spirit is sent to help you do that, to both know my teaching and live my teaching. That's why he says in verse 26, but the helper, so here he is again, he's reminded you of the life, he's reminded you of the marker, here's the second way the Spirit helps, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Pause there, because the, the next phrase opens the next section. But his whole point is, listen, a life of Jesus, a following Jesus, it's crazy, it's marked by love and obedience, but here's the good news. I'm going to give you a helper to do that. And what he's going to do is he's actually going to bring to mind what is true of me so that you can walk in love and obedience. He's going to teach you. He's going to reveal God's word ultimately, which helps us, but he's also going to be in us to be regularly teaching us, regularly helping us to live that life. I've told you before, I've talked about this before, but I think it's good to bear repeating. I've done a lot of work with years over, over the years with guys who um, struggle with addiction to pornography. It came out of my own journey of God finding freedom from that after years of addiction. And one of the things that I... Um, will often do when I meet with guys and I talk to them about that struggle. And, and I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, the last time that you struggled in this, do you remember? Well, first I always check to see if they're, they're actually a Christian or not. So we always start with the gospel. That's the first section. Have you trusted in Jesus covering your sin? Because that's where it's got to begin. But then the second session is always this. I want you to think about the last time you had that struggle. Was there, was there a moment in your, before you entered into that, where you felt in your spirit something that said, don't do that. That's not right. Like, don't stay up too late. Go to bed. Tell someone about this. Call someone. Like, I always ask that question. And without fail, all of them will say yes. And I'll say, that's the spirit of God. He's in you to help you obey. He's actually given to you so you'll bring to remembrance and go, oh, I'm not supposed to live that way. 
I'm not supposed to walk in disobedience. That's not the life that God has for me. And what I always tell those guys is, your job is to figure out how you amplify that voice in your life and follow it instead of your flesh. Because God's actually given us the resource to live out a life of love and obedience. And that's not true, just true for that sin. That's true for any sin that we struggle with. Whatever that particular sin you struggle with, God has given you himself in you as a resource to help teach you obedience, not disobedience, so that you can experience the fullness of life that he has for you. It's not to be a drag. He's not trying to bum out your life and make it worse. No, he's given it to you because he knows love and obedience is the best path for your life to live this dynamic life he's given you. The Spirit is a helper. And then he finally concludes this last section, this comfort that he brings here in the last few verses. He goes back to that phrase he began at the very beginning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, here's his challenge, you would have rejoiced, right? They're freaking out, and he's saying, no, if you actually got what was going on here, you'd be happy about it, because I'm going back to my glory. I'm going back to my Father, and as we'll see in a minute, because I'm going to the Father, that means I can send you the helper that's actually going to help you live the life that I'm calling you to live to experience that deep joy that I have. So he said, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Which they would, if you keep reading the Gospel of John. And then he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus is going to introduce a conflict between himself and the evil of this world that stands opposed to God's will and God's plan. And he's going to help his disciples understand how to live that out in the passages to come. But he reminds them here, he doesn't have any claim on me. And then this is how he concludes this first section. Hear it again, right? But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go from here. You see, the Spirit helps us. He keeps us in the truth. He teaches us love and obedience. He's given to dwell in us, so God's present with us. But at the end of the day, he empowers us to live the Jesus life, the life that he called them to. He reminds them, the life I'm calling you to of love and obedience, that's the very life I'm living. I mean, I, I, it just struck me, like the way they themes this whole thing. But he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Right? I walk in obedience. And that's not an easy road. Let's just be clear. The road he's on is to death. Philippians 2 reminds us that he was obedient to death. That's how obedient to his father he was. Now, Hebrews would remind us that he was obedient to death for the joy that was set before him. So there was a joy on the other side of obedience for him that he would receive. But at this point, he's not on the other side yet. He just knows he's headed towards an excruciating death for the sins of the world. But what does he say? I do as the Father has commanded me. You see, he had such trust in his Father and the plan of his Father and the purposes of his Father that he was willing to be obedient. And then what does he say? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Why am I obedient? Because I want him to know 
how much I love him. How great he is. So I can make much of his glory. And in many ways, the point that Jesus gives us here is a reminder, I'm only calling you to do what I've already done. The call to love and obedience is a road I've already walked. And that's exactly where life and joy and goodness is found. And here's the even better news. I've given you the spirit to help you do that. So the question is, will you follow his example? Will you walk in love and obedience? Will you seek to live the Jesus life? Because what he's done is taken the impossible and reminded us that it's possible. What he's shown is the example I've shown in living, you can now live by the power of the Holy Spirit. The question simply is, and I love how he, I I think it's purposeful. Will you rise with him and go to where he's going? Because that's how the passage ends before he starts his next section. Rise, let's go from here. You're going to go? with him towards love and obedience, you're going to follow him? It's kind of left that question. And it's a question I think we should leave with today. He set the example. He's given us the help we need. Will you go on tour with you two, or are you going to sit, picking at your little fumbly guitar in your room, trying to figure out your own resources? That's the question. Are you going to live the life Jesus has for you? Do you want a life of answered prayer and works and intimacy with God? Do you want to see God move in your life? Pursue a life of love and obedience. He's given you what's necessary in order to do it. William McDonald, in his book, True Discipleship, has this quote, and I just want to leave you with this and just kind of let it hang over you for a moment and then pray. He says this, The fact of the matter is that obedience to the Lord's command is the most sane and reasonable life and the one that yields the greatest joy. And when we're reminded of the power of the Spirit, it reminds us that that's true. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us to believe that. I know in this moment that all of us have a thousand other voices that want to tell us that that isn't true, that want to tell us that our greatest joy, our greatest life is not found in a path of loving obedience, but rather selfish disobedience. I know that we'll leave this place today, God, And from the moment we are on the road, there's going to be a voice from our flesh that's saying, no, no, no. Give in to what you want, not what Jesus calls you to. I know there's going to be a world that inundates our screens with advertisements that say, find your joy in something else and invite us to a path of disobedience against your word. And I know we have an enemy who's just in trying in this place to cause us to doubt or question your word that's seeking to draw our reliance on ourselves and not you. And yet, Jesus, we're reminded in this passage that you've given us the power in order to stand against those things. 
that for those of us that are in Jesus, you're right here in us, that your voice is louder than the voice of the enemy, that it's stronger than the calls of the world, that it overcomes our flesh, and that it actually helps us to walk the obedient, loving life that you've called us to. So I just ask right now, Lord, that you would help us to tune our hearts to his voice, his power, his presence. Even as we worship right now, would you just use it as we, as we sing together to just bring our awareness to your presence and power in our lives so that we might leave here with greater faith in you, greater love for you, and a desire to walk in greater obedience. So we invite you to work now, even as we respond in worship. Move, Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.